Let's get into it. Oh, I want to say thank you, Olivia, for setting everything up today. Olivia is running the camera and makes it possible for me to say hello to the pajama people. <laughs> and uh, last week we heard from somebody in Canada who watched. So we're getting out there. So no matter who you are, no matter where you are on your spiritual journey, you are welcome here. I want to begin today by um, offering something for us to focus on. It's a prayer, and I think you will experience as you hear it that it is not directed to some sky god, but more to what I have begun to refer to as either connecting presence, sacred mystery, or divine presence. So here it is. O cosmic birther of all radiance and vibration, soften the ground of our being and carve out a space within us where your presence can abide. Fill us with your creativity so that we may be empowered to bear the fruit of your mission. Let each of our actions bear fruit in accordance with your desire. Endow us with the wisdom to produce and share what each being needs to grow and flourish. Untie the tangled threads of destiny that bind us as we release others from the entanglement of past mistakes. Do not let us be seduced by that which would divert us from our true purpose, but illuminate the opportunities of the present moment. For you are the ground and the fruitful vision, the birth power and fulfillment as all is gathered and made whole once again. Isn't that beautiful? This prayer comes from a Jewish mystic by the name of Jesus. Some churches pray it every Sunday. It is the prayer that we know as the Lord's Prayer. And this version of the prayer is the work of the translation from the Aramaic by Jesus and biblical scholar Neil Douglas Klotz, whom I began to study about 30 years ago when this book came out. That This book came out 30 years ago and, and is so in harmony with what we know about the cosmos today is amazing. Now, I have made the pronouns in the prayer plural and I'd read it, uh, although the way that I use it on a daily basis, the pronouns are, are personal. So uh, for those of you, even though this will be in the text that goes out Tuesday, and if you're not signed up for the email, there are email sign-up cards back there, or this will be on the website on Tuesday morning. I know some of you like to take pictures, so here it is again. O oh, cosmic birther of all radiance and vibrations, soften the ground of our being and carve out a space within us where your presence can abide. 
Fill us with your creativity so that we may be empowered to bear the fruit of your mission. Let each of our actions bear fruit in accordance with your desire. Endow us with the wisdom to produce and share what each being needs to grow and flourish. Untie the tangled threads of destiny that bind us as we release others from the entanglement of past mistakes. Do not let us be seduced by that which would divert us from our true purpose, but illuminate the opportunities of the present moment. For you are the ground and the fruitful vision, the birth power and fulfillment as all is gathered and made whole once again. I encourage you to make this prayer part of your daily practice. You do have a daily practice, right? Uh, just, just checking, just checking. Um, though, you know, I hope that you enjoy this time and like what you hear and are glad you came. My intention is that what happens here makes a difference in your life and consequently in the world, which may mean enduring a little upset because we can't keep things the same. So I am breaking a rule today. It's one that I have imposed upon myself. I, I promise when I started using the questions of Jesus as a guide for creating these talks that I would use, uh, I'd do one question and move on to the next. And, and this is a challenge because many of the questions that Jesus asked are matters that we could spend weeks on. Indeed, large books have been written on just single questions. Um, for example, the question, who do you say that I am? Or the question, who was neighbor to the man in need? That one drawn from the story we call the Good Samaritan. Or the question that we looked at last week, why are you so anxious? Now, I, I'm returning to this question for two reasons. The first is that this is a question, why are you so anxious, that is asked throughout the Jewish Christian scriptures. In every instance, in the Hebrew scriptures and in the Christian scriptures, in every instance where there is a flaring forth of the sacred that people comment on, Moses notices a bush that's burning but is not consumed. Angels in the sky announce the birth of Jesus or something like that. When the divine presence breaks through, the words are spoken, fear not, be not afraid. One of the great lines in Jewish wisdom literature is, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And this doesn't mean to be scared of God, as many people have been taught to mean, but it means to be awestruck by the sacred. That's one reason that we're returning to this question, and it will appear again and again in, in our pursuing the Jesus narrative. Why are you frightened? Why are you so anxious? And the second reason I am returning to it is because fear runs and ruins our world and our culture. So we have to embrace a new way of thinking a new way of knowing, a new way of understanding, a new way of being open to wisdom if we are to move out of the arena where we are run and ruined by fear. Now that's the goal for this talk today. So how do we do that? How do we 
as it were, so to speak, embrace a totally new epistemology, a new way of thinking. So I would begin by reminding you that we human beings are largely unconscious creatures. I don't mean just that we live a lot of our lives on automatic pilot, we do. Or that we live a lot of our lives in a trance, we do. I mean, we are largely unconscious. We are not awake. We are not aware. And spiritual work is about waking up. And I don't know about you, but I openly admit that I still have a lot of work to do in this arena. Now, how are we to do this? There are many paths. We're exploring one of them. And, and in an effort to get you to look at your own life, I'm going to share a, a brief experience from our recent pilgrimage to Santiago. Now, you have a favorite color, right? You have favorite taste. You have sounds you prefer above others. I don't know where my preferences came from. Blue is my favorite color. Salt is my favorite taste. But even when I was a little guy, six, seven years old, I have been attracted to Gothic architecture and the music from that period. Now, how a boy born in Tennessee of Southern Baptist got there is a mystery. Well, maybe not entirely. Uh, my parents were devoutly religious. They were both highly educated, and they were racist. But we had coming into our house on a regular basis books. We were encouraged to read the encyclopedia. My mother was a high school senior English teacher. Um, uh, I would see uh, copies of Life magazine. Some of you may be old enough to remember Life came uh, delivered every week to our house. And, and uh, we also had National Geographic. National Geographic is that subscription that you put in boxes and move from house to house <laughs> <laughs> over the years. Oh, we don't want to throw those away. And occasionally, they would have photographs of places like Notre Dame. And, and other places. And then when I went to school, there were history books that were available. And I can remember <coughs> the first time I stepped into uh, the cathedral in Toledo, Spain, my involutional response was, holy Toledo. <laughs> it was incredible. And then, then we journeyed on and went to, uh, into Notre Dame and into Saint-Chapelle, into Sacré-Cœur, in, all in Paris, and, and I was smitten. Then came a time when I was seeing and walking into the cathedral in Lyon, Spain. This is probably the best example of Gothic architecture anywhere in the world. And I have been in the space three times now. This is, it's just an incredible, incredible church. The church of construction on this cathedral began in 1205. And amazingly, this cathedral was built in less than 100 years. I mean, that's amazing. This is what the, the whole thing looks like. 
So one of the things that Peter Sills arranges on these pilgrimages that he organized organizes as is at least once and sometimes as many as four times a day there are opportunities to be involved in some sort of liturgical experience morning prayer eucharist evening prayer compline um, and and we did these services in these places so Peter Sills had arranged for us to have the Eucharist in a side chapel of Lyon Cathedral before we were free to have an hour and a half there just to wander around and, and to enjoy the cathedral. Um, this cathedral and other places along the way from Lepuy, um, France to Santiago, that was the first pilgrimage route, it started in Lapuy. Um, there were no cars. There were no tunnels going under the Pyrenees. The way you got from there to Santiago was you walked. Or you, uh, if you were noble, you might have a horse and somebody to carry your, your goods. The journey took between five and six months. And places of hospitality and refreshment and safety were built along the way. These were not places that were easy to get to on purpose because they didn't want them to be accessed by brigands and robbers and things like that. So very difficult to get to. Even on a coach, narrow, winding, mountainous roads that would take you into up the, the Pyrenees. One we went to, and the one I'm eventually going to illustrate my point using, is the Benedictine Monastery of Silos. Now, this monastery was started in 780. Not 1780. 780. They, they have archaeological digs with plexiglass in front of them where you can see the well and the, the sacristy and the chapter house of the original monastery. Uh, the one that we were in was built in the, the, the 14th century. Um, this is a UNESCO site. You know those things, for whatever reason, you get elected a UNESCO site. This is a very amazing place. One of the few two-story cloisters there is. Each of these columns has been hand-carved. We're talking about something that was now done in 1200 and something. Each of the columns hand-done. This, in case you don't know it immediately, is the scene of the doubting Thomas. Here is Thomas placing his hand in the wound of Jesus. Every column around this uh, cloister is unique and different. Now, I don't want this to be a travelogue, but I, I wanted to set the scene for what is about what was, for me, a profound spiritual experience. So we found out that this is a working monastery. There are about 70 monks there. We spent hours on the grounds because it was our plan to join the monks of Silos for evening prayer at 4 o'clock on Sunday afternoon. And having exhausted ourselves at looking at things, and because it was so unbearably hot outside, we went into the abbey, which is the church. Around 3.30, the service was to start at 4. 
And about the time we arrived in the Abbey, a monk came in and sat in a choir. And he just sat. And after a few minutes, I said to Sherry, I bet that monk could beat us in a sitting contest. He didn't move. Um, now, I want to insert something that, here that's true about us all the time, everywhere. Uh, it was true for me in that monastery. It's true for me right this moment. It's true for you right this moment, too. There is much more to us than we know. There's more to other people than we recognize. A small part of who we are is awake and above the surface of the water, and we call that our consciousness. And even then, as I said earlier, we are frequently in a daze, or we're on automatic pilot, even here. Then there is the unconscious, and there is what we call the shadow. This is true about everybody in this room. Okay, there's no exception to this. And the people who think they know, it's even more true for. So for shorthand, I'm going to say that the unconscious is what we do not know about ourselves. And I'm going to say that the shadow is what we cannot face about ourselves, okay? Now, what do we do with this stuff? What do you do with the unconscious and with the shadow? What we don't know and what we can't face, what do we do with that? You know, when you go to heaven and St. Peter asks you this sort of question, you're going to have to have some answers. So <laughs> what do you do with it? We project it onto other people. Soon people from the surrounding area began to come into the service. That's where I assume they to be from. Uh, as four o'clock approached, the place began to fill up and the monks came in one by one from different places back in the sacristy area, in the chancel area, and they assumed their places on either side of the choir. And this abbey was built for what we were about to experience. There were about 50 monks in the choir. I was really surprised because on earlier trips, pilgrimage, on pilgrimages to monasteries and abbeys, the monks that we have seen, there have been a half a dozen of them, and they were all on walkers, it seemed, or should be. These monks were in their 30s, their 40s, their 50s. I could show you a picture of a priest that we met on the trip, he'd just been ordained for about six weeks, and, and, and I don't know how any young woman attending Mass would keep her mind on the Mass. He was so gorgeous. And so the monks came in, and, and I knew immediately, I mean, I had a hunch because of the monk that had come in earlier. I knew immediately when something was up, when a monk 
at the, at, on the right-hand side of the choir, reached down and took out a prayer bench and unfolded the legs and sat down in a Buddhist meditation posture. It's the same kind of prayer bench that I used. I knew that something was up. We didn't know. We had not been told. But we were in for a 30-minute sit. Nothing happened for 30 minutes. Now, you just imagine, you come here Sunday morning or you go across to the worship and, and they do the call to worship and everybody files in and there is nothing for 30 minutes. You are just there with your projections. So as the time began, we were five minutes into the sit. And I thought, uh, why would somebody choose a life of celibacy? And I thought, maybe they aren't celibate. I mean, I wonder if anybody's having sex with somebody in there. <laughs> you know, I bet one of these guys is a gossip. I wonder which one it is. <laughs> There was a man who came in and was sitting on the front row with another guy. This guy was in jeans, sandals, and a T-shirt. And we had been introduced to him earlier in the day. He was the abbot of this monastery, but he was currently on vacation. But he had come there for this prayer. And, and I wondered, I wonder who up there thinks they're going to take his place. What's the competition like in this community? So on it went until I became aware of what was going on. Now, you make projection all the time onto the people that you don't like politically or to those you do. Make projection onto me. When you applaud at the end of this time together, there's something in you that you are honoring, not me. I mean, I appreciate it. Please don't stop, but... <laughs> it's a projection. The first step in healing the divisions in our world is withdrawing the projections we make and accepting the people in this world as we ourselves want to be accepted. And when we do this, we are participating in the evolution of rightness. It is just right to treat people as we ourselves want to be treated. That's the biggest religious evolutionary idea to have come along. What we don't know owns and ruins us, and what we can't face ruins others. Angry white men who don't know, who cannot face their own hurt from lack of nurture, uh, their lack of contact with their own soft feminine side direct their fear outward. By the way, <clears throat> you know these monks. You may not know that you know these monks, but I'll bet you do. Because back a few years ago, there was a very popular CD called Chant. Remember that? These guys did that. 
and they have done many, many others. So if you go on Pandora or you go on Apple Music and you enter the Benedictine monks of Silos, it looks like Silos, but Silos, you'll come up with some of their gorgeous Gregorian chant album music. It's just, it's just amazing. And to have sat there in that abbey that afternoon when they finally stopped that silence nonsense and <laughs> started doing the chanting of evening prayer back and forth in that choir in a place that was just built for that, it was an amazing experience. So how do we find the freedom from projection and fear? Well, you do it by picking up a lesson you learned in grammar school. You stop. You become aware. You look around, look in, you listen. I've just finished rereading for perhaps fourth time Thich Nhat Hanh's wonderful little book called Fear. Essential Wisdom for Getting Through the Storm. I'm going to quote him a bit uh, later from that book. Uh, I recommend it to you. Uh, it, Thich Nhat Hanh has done some wonderful work, and he's now returned to Vietnam to die. Um, he, he came up with this phrase called interbeing, where it's his ability or, or desire to recognize that the being in me is connected to the being in you, and that we interbe with each other. And, and in another book he wrote, do not be idolatrous about or bound to any doctrine, theory, or ideology, even Buddhist ones. All systems of thought are guiding means. They are not absolute truth. If you have a gun, you can shoot one, two, three, five people. Now we know you can do a lot more than that. He didn't know that. But you, if you have an ideology and stick to it, thinking it is the absolute truth, you can kill millions. Do not think that the knowledge you presently possess is changeless, absolute truth. Avoid being narrow-minded and bound to present views. Learn and practice non-attachment from views in order to be open to receive others' viewpoints. In other words, withdraw projections. You can't face, nothing can be faced, nothing can be changed until we face it. And we face it first in here. So one of the ways that we can cease our being addicted to fear is stopping our intoxicants. And by that, I mean stopping paying undue attention to what's broadcast in the culture as the news. Take a long break from your cell phone. I mean, a long break. Give up social media for a week. Anxiety's going up in the room as you say this. When somebody asked me about the prayer beads I wear, I said, these are my cell phone for spiritual practice. <laughs> I carry it with me all the time. Simply stop and look. Many people spend a lot of time acting out of fear of the past or the present, and when we do that, it affects people around us. It affects our larger society, and we participate in creating a culture of fear. Nobody wants to be scared. 
We all want to, I mean, everybody wants to live in peace and security. The spiritual issue is, can we learn to let go of fear and relinquish the anger and violence, violence that it animates in us? And if we are to do that, we're going to have to stop and listen deeply. Now, what Jesus talked about, where he spoke from, um, is he called the kingdom of God or the rule of God. Sometimes that rule of God can be hidden by a cloud of ignorance or a storm of anger, violence, fear. But if we practice being present to what is, even if the weather is foggy or cloudy or stormy, the blue sky is still there. I remember being in a cockpit of a commercial jet with Captain Bill Nogus years ago, and we were taxiing down a runway on a rainy day, and Bill said, um, we'll be above this in five minutes. But we think it's the real when just five minutes. In the language Jesus used when he said repent, he means to wake up and be aware that our fear and anger and craving are covering up the blue sky. The basic condition for touching the kingdom of God is freedom from fear and from despair and anger and craving. And how do we do this? Well, the first step is helping other people feel safe. Only with deep listening and true communication, not those growing out of projections, can we remove the wrong perceptions that are at the foundation of fear, hatred, and violence? You cannot remove a wrong perception with a gun. I would say that the primary lesson we're learning from the new cosmology is that nothing exists separately. We, we have to train ourselves to see this every day in everyone. And when you're in sitting meditation, you sit with the awareness that we, when we're in the grips of fear, we, we close down and we can't be compassionate, we can't be loving. To love others, we first have to be loving and gentle with ourselves. We have to accept ourselves and, and to work at having some degree of joy and, and, and happiness. After I returned from doing the 10-day training and meditation, which is where I first learned what I'm about to offer you and which I now no longer so enthusiastically recommend to people to rush off and do, we can talk about that. A Buddhist friend of mine, I was sitting with a Buddhist friend of mine, and uh, he asked me what was my experience of being immersed in that very intense meditation training. And I thought for a minute, and I said, well... Um, ever since I've come back, I've just been filled with so much gratitude. I've just been so thankful. And he told me a story from the Zen tradition that struck me powerfully. You know, in Buddhism, there is a belief that in, in reincarnation, and the belief is that we're, we're born into countless manifestations through eons of time. And it's best to be born a human, because humans have the best chance of awakening in their life. But it's rare to be born a human. You know that? A lot more cockroaches. <laughs> he said, imagine that there is a turtle 
that lives on the bottom of the ocean's floor. Now, we don't know what ocean because the turtle moves from ocean to ocean. Once every hundred years, this turtle comes up for a breath of air. Now, suppose you were in the middle of one of those oceans in a rowboat. And you get a small brass ring, four inches in diameter. And just on impulse, you decide to throw it out into the ocean. And at that moment, the turtle comes up for air and the ring goes over the turtle's head. He said, those are the odds of your being born into the incarnation you presently have into the place and community where you presently live. Your life is such a gift. Being here, this time, this, this manifestation is such a gift. A Buddhist saying, hard it is to be born into human life, but now we are living it. If we do not awaken in this life, in which life will we ever awaken? So at that 10-day meditation at the end, we were taught to meditation. There are many forms of this. After you stop and you notice and you withdraw the projections, you express this aspiration. Uh, may I be peaceful, happy, and light in body and spirit. May I be free from injury. May I be free from fear, anxiety, anger, and afflictions. Now, as I said, there are many, many, many manifestations of this. May I be peaceful and at ease. May I be happy. May I be free from difficulties. All of these that I'm sure you will memorize during your daily practice as it goes along. So after you make this affirmation, then you say about your partner, may he or she be peaceful, happy, light in body and spirit. May he or she be safe and free from injury. May he or she be free from fear, anger, anxiety, and affliction. And then you increase the circle just a little bit larger. And maybe you say, well, may all the people in ordinary life be peaceful, happy, light in body and spirit. May they be blah, 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 and you go on. I need to get the circle a little bit bigger. You know those people who the very thought of them make you go, oh. <laughs> you get to where you include them. We want for everybody what we want for ourselves. Although this is an entirely other subject, what we believe or think we believe is never so influenced as by part of the tribe we are a part of. Tribal mentality takes it over intellectual status every day for everyone. And we just need to be aware of that. Now, I have tried continuously to put before you the five virtues of peace, Love, joy, patience, humility. Those five. But if we're going to eliminate intolerance, anger, discrimination, fear, and hopelessness from our world, we have to do more. So I'm going to suggest 
Um, and these will be in the hand, I mean, in the online copy, they'll be in, in, um, in the email that goes out Tuesday. I'm gonna suggest Thich Nhat Hanh's own five mindfulness trainings, and I'm just gonna skim the surface. First is the reverence for life. Since we know of the suffering caused by the destruction of life, and we know, we know how connected we are to others, we're going to learn and commit ourselves to protect human life and animal life and plant life and resources life and the planet's life. We are determined not to kill or to let others kill, not to support the act of any killing in the world. Seeing that harmful actions arise out of anger and fear, which come from dualistic, discriminative thinking, we will cultivate views that are opposite of these. Now, next week, we'll talk about the power of language to do this. The second mind training is to train ourselves to true happiness. And this means that we will practice generosity in our thoughts and speech and acts, and we will share those with people in need. We will work at seeing that my happiness is tied up with your happiness, and his happiness is tied up with her happiness. We will see this is true of the street people that are over at Abraham Station right now waiting for lunch. We will see that families trying to find safety and food for their children, no matter where they are in this world, are part of our family. The third thing that we will train ourselves for is true love. You know the growest, the fastest growing phenomenon in our world? is the internet. You know that, right? The fastest growing part of the internet is pornography. You know that. Did you know that six-year-olds learn about sex from their smartphones? That's our culture. Children are learning what they're learning about human be how human beings connect by watching their phones. I'm not going to do that today, but we need a, a deep theology where we can openly talk, freely talk about human sexuality. Regardless of your sexual orientation, we want to develop and be part of communities where people can live out their true, deep love in long-term committed relationships established in the presence of supportive friends and family. We want to do everything in our, opportunity, in our power so that everyone has her or his opportunity to care for their sexual energy and to cultivate kindness and compassion and enjoy and joy and inclusivity and practicing this kind of true love is a better way to move into the future than what we're doing now another important mindfulness training has to do with loving speech and deep listening as i said this is going to be primary focus of my talk next week but words matter words can create happiness or suffering when we speak them or when we hear them my spiritual teacher back in the 60s gave me an assignment one day. He said, I want you to go a week and don't say anything about another person, positive or negative, if you're not in their presence. Try it. 
And the fifth uh, mindfulness training has to do with unmindful consumption. One of the people I frequently refer people to when life tumbles in on them is Pima Chodron. She's a Buddhist monk nun. And she writes in one of her books, one of the perpetual habits we have is feeling that the present moment isn't good enough. And this is paramount in our culture where we have a religion of consumerism always telling us that we don't have enough in one way or another. We need more of what we don't have so we can go get another storage locker to put the stuff we do have in it. So we are taught to cover up our loneliness and anxiety by consuming something. Now, as I said earlier, I want these times together today or any time uh, to be useful to you. I want you to be glad you came, maybe glad enough that next week you'll invite somebody else to come. Um, I also want us to stand in the presence of divine presence and be awestruck by that and to be affected by that. My understanding of being a Christian is to relate to the God of Jesus with the faith that that relationship will not leave me unchanged. I want us to hear a voice from within calling us, telling us that this world and the people who live upon it are in trouble. And they need, we need the benefit of these five mindful, mindfulness trainings. After the mass shootings recently, I heard several politicians say on the news, this does not define us. Good enough. What does? If we as a culture keep doing what we're doing, we as a culture are going to keep getting what we got. What role do those who claim to be seeking to know and follow Jesus and or his teachings, what role do we play in this? We should be awestruck when we realize that we are in the heart of connecting presence. Some of you remember Annie Dillard. She wrote Pilgrim at Tinker Creek. And in one of her books, she wrote, why do people in church seem like cheerful, brainless tourists on a package tour of the absolute? <laughs> the tourists are having coffee and donuts on deck C. Presumably someone's minding the ship, correcting the course, avoiding icebergs and shoals, taking care of the engines, watching the radar screen, noting weather reports radioed in from shore. No one would dream of asking the tourists to do these things. Alas... Among the tourists on deck C, drinking coffee and eating donuts, we find the captain and all the ship's officers and all the ship's crew. The officers chat, they swear, they wink at a bit slightly naughty raw, raw, jokes, raw jokes, just like regular people. The crew does have funny accents. The wind seems to be picking up. On the whole, I do not find Christians outside of the catacombs sufficiently sensible of conditions. Does anyone have the foggiest idea what sort of power we brithely invoke? Or, as I suspect, does no one believe a word of it? The churches are children playing on the floor with their chemistry sets, mixing up a batch of TNT to kill a Sunday morning. It's madness to wear ladies' straw hats and velvet hats to church. We should all be wearing crash helmets. 
Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to our pews. For the sleeping God may wake up someday and take offense, or the waking God may draw us to where we can never return. Now, to move out of the arena where we are run and ruined by fear, what we have to do is simple. Not easy, just simple. We have to wake up. We have to grow up. We got to clean up our acts. Most of all, we have to learn at every level of our existence to treat others as we ourselves want to be treated. This is the evolution of religion and spirituality that wants to take place in you, in us. No matter what happens this week, no matter where you go, remember this, you carry precious cargo, so watch your step, and I will see you here next Sunday. Thank you.